0: Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at Popsugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 45. The Affidavit. So far as what there may be of a narrative in this book, and indeed as indirectly touching one or two very interesting and curious particulars in the habits of sperm whales, the foregoing chapter in its earlier part is as important a one as will be found in this volume. But the leading matter of it requires to be still further and more familiarly enlarged upon in order to be adequately understood and, moreover, to take away any incredulity which a profound ignorance of the entire subject may induce in some minds, as to the natural verity of the main points of this affair. I care not to perform this part of my task methodically, but shall be content to produce the desired impression by separate citations of items, practically or reliably known to me as a whaleman. And from these citations, I take it, the conclusion aimed at will naturally follow of itself. First, I have personally known three instances where a whale, after receiving a harpoon, has effected a complete escape, and after an interval, in one instance of three years, has been again struck by the same hand and slain, when the two irons, both marked by the same private cipher, have been taken from the body, In the instance where three years intervened between the flinging of the two harpoons, and I think it may have been something more than that, the man who darted them happening in the interval to go in a trading ship on a voyage to Africa went ashore there, joined a discovery party, and penetrated far into the interior, where he traveled for a period of nearly two years, often endangered by serpents, tigers, with all the other common perils incident to wandering in the heart of unknown regions. Meanwhile, the whale he had struck must also have been on its travels. No doubt it had thrice circumnavigated the globe, brushing with its flanks all the coasts of Africa, but to no purpose. This man and this whale again came together, and the one vanquished the other. I say I myself have known three instances similar to this, That is, in two of them I saw the whale struck, and upon the second attack saw the two irons with the respective marks cut in them, afterwards taken from the dead fish. In the three-year instance, it so fell out that I was in the boat both times, first and last, and the last time distinctly recognized a peculiar sort of huge mole under the whale's eye, which I had observed there three years previous, I say three years, but I am pretty sure it was more than that. Here are three instances, then, which I personally know the truth of. But I have heard of many other instances from persons whose veracity in the matter there is no good ground to impeach. Secondly, it is well known in the sperm whale fishery, however ignorant the world ashore may be of it, that there have been several memorable historical instances where a particular whale in the ocean has been at distant times and places popularly cognizable. Why such a whale became thus marked was not altogether and originally owing to his bodily peculiarities as distinguished from other whales. For however peculiar in that respect any chance whale may be, they soon put an end to his peculiarities by killing him and boiling him down into a peculiarly valuable oil. No, the reason was this that from the fatal experiences of the fishery there hung a terrible prestige of perilousness about such a whale, as there did about Rinaldo Rinaldini, insomuch that most fishermen were content to recognize him by merely touching their tarpaulins when he would be discovered lounging by them on the sea, without seeking to cultivate a more intimate acquaintance. Like some poor devils ashore that happened to know an irascible great man— they make distant, unobtrusive salutations to him in the street, lest, if they pursued the acquaintance further, they might receive a summary thump for their presumption. But not only did each of these famous whales enjoy great individual celebrity, nay, you may call it an ocean-wide renown, not only was he famous in life and now is immortal in stories after death, but he was admitted into all the rights, privileges, and distinctions of a name, had as much a name indeed as Cambyses or Caesar. Was it not so, or Tim or Tom, thou famed Leviathan, scarred like an iceberg, who so long didst lurk in the oriental straits of that name, whose spout was oft seen from the palmy beach of Ombay? Was it not so, O New Zealand Jack, thou terror of all cruisers that cross their wakes in the vicinity of the Tattoo-land?' Was it not so, or Morquin, king of Japan, whose lofty jet they say at times assumed the semblance of a snow-white cross against the sky? Was it not so, O oh Don Miguel, thou Chilean whale, marked like an old tortoise, with mystic hieroglyphics upon the back? In plain prose, here are four whales, as well known to the students of cetacean history as Marius or Scylla to the classical scholar. But this is not all. New Zealand Tom and Don Miguel, after at various times creating great havoc among the boats of different vessels, were finally gone in quest of, systematically hunted out, chased and killed by valiant whaling captains, who heaved up their anchors with that expressed object, as much in view, as in setting out through the Narragansett woods, Captain Butler of old had it in his mind to capture that notorious murderous savage Anawan, the headmost warrior of the Indian King Philip. I do not know where I can find a better place than just here, to make mention of one or two other things, which to me seem important, as in printed form establishing in all respects the reasonableness of the whole story of the white whale, more especially the catastrophe. For this is one of those disheartening instances where truth requires full as much bolstering as error. So ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. First, Though most men have some vague, flitting ideas of the general perils of the grand fishery, yet they have nothing like a fixed, vivid conception of those perils, and the frequency with which they recur. One reason, perhaps, is that not one in fifty of the actual disasters and deaths by casualties in the fishery ever finds a public record at home, however transient and immediately forgotten that record. "'Do you suppose that that poor fellow there, "'who this moment, perhaps caught by the whale line "'off the coast of New Guinea, "'is being carried down to the bottom of the sea "'by the sounding leviathan? "'Do you suppose that that poor fellow's name "'will appear in the newspaper obituary? "'You will read tomorrow at your breakfast?' "'No. "'Because the mails are very irregular "'between here and New Guinea. "'In fact, did you ever hear what might be called "'regular news direct or indirect from New Guinea?' Yet I tell you that upon one particular voyage, which I made to the Pacific, among many others we spoke thirty different ships, every one of which had had a death by a whale, some of them more than one, and three that had each lost a boat's crew. For God's sake, be economical with your lamps and candles. Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Secondly, people ashore have indeed some indefinite idea that a whale is an enormous creature of enormous power. But I've ever found that when narrating to them some specific example of this twofold enormousness, they have significantly complimented me upon my facetiousness. When I declare upon my soul, I had no more idea of being facetious than Moses when he wrote the history of the plagues of Egypt. But fortunately, the special point I here seek can be established upon testimony entirely independent of my own. That point is this. The sperm whale is in some cases sufficiently powerful, knowing, and judiciously malicious, as with direct aforethought to Staven, utterly destroy and sink a large ship. And what is more, the sperm whale has done it. First, in the year 1820, the ship Essex, Captain Pollard of Nantucket, was cruising in the Pacific Ocean. One day she saw spouts, lowered her boats, and gave chase to a shoal of sperm whales. Ere long, several of the whales were wounded, when suddenly a very large whale, escaping from the boats, issued from the shoal and bore directly down upon the ship. Dashing his forehead against her hull, he so strove in her... "'that in less than ten minutes she settled down and fell over. "'Not a surviving plank of her has been seen since. "'After the severest exposure, "'part of the crew reached the land in their boats. "'Being returned home at last, Captain Pollard "'once more sailed for the Pacific in command of another ship. "'But the gods shipwrecked him again "'upon unknown rocks and breakers. "'For the second time, his ship was utterly lost.' and forthwith, forswearing the sea, he has never tempted it since. At this day, Captain Pollard is a resident of Nantucket. I have seen Owen Chase, who was chief mate of the Essex at the time of the tragedy. I have read his plain and faithful narrative. I have conversed with his son, and all this within a few miles of the scene of the catastrophe. The following are extracts from Chase's narrative. Every fact seemed to warrant me in concluding that it was anything but chance which directed his operations. He made two several attacks upon the ship at a short interval between them, both of which, according to their direction, were calculated to do us the most injury by being made ahead and thereby combining the speed of the two objects for the shock, to effect which the exact maneuvers which he made were necessary. His aspect was most horrible, and such as indicated resentment and fury. He came directly from the shoal which we had just before entered, and in which we had struck three of his companions, as if fired with revenge for their sufferings. Again, at all events the whole circumstance is taken together, all happening before my own eyes, and producing, at the time, impressions in my mind of decided calculating mischief on the part of the whale... Many of which impressions I cannot now recall, induce me to be satisfied that I am correct in my opinion. Here is reflection some time after quitting the ship, during a black night in an open boat, when almost despairing of reaching any hospitable shore. The dark ocean and swelling waters were nothing, the fears of being swallowed up by some dreadful tempest, or dashed upon hidden rocks, with all the other ordinary subjects of fearful contemplation, seems scarcely entitled to a moment's thought. The dismal-looking wreck and the horrid aspect and revenge of the whale wholly engrossed my reflections until day again made its appearance. In another place, page 45, he speaks of the mysterious and mortal attack of the animal. Secondly, The ship Union, also of Nantucket, was in the year 1807 totally lost off the Azores by a similar onset. But the authentic particulars of this catastrophe I have never chanced to encounter, though from the whale hunters I have now and then heard casual allusions to it. Thirdly, some 18 or 20 years ago, Commodore Johnson, then commanding an American sloop of war of the first class, Happened to be dining with a party of whaling captains on board a Nantucket ship in the harbor of Oahu, Sandwich Islands. Conversation turning upon whales, the Commodore was pleased to be skeptical touching the amazing strength ascribed to them by the professional gentlemen present. He peremptorily denied, for example, that any whale could so smite his stout sloop of war as to cause her to leak so much as a thimbleful. Very good but there is more coming. Some weeks after, the Commodore set sail in this impregnable craft for Valparaiso. But he was stopped on the way by a portly sperm whale that begged a few moments confidential business with him. That business consisted in fetching the Commodore's craft such a thwack that with all his pumps going, he made straight for the nearest port to heave down and repair. I am not superstitious, But I consider the Commodore's interview with the whale as providential. Was not Saul of Tarsus converted from unbelief by a similar fright? I tell you, the sperm whale will stand no nonsense. I will now refer you to Langsdorff's voyages for a little circumstance and point, peculiarly interesting to the writer hereof. Langsdorff you must know, by the way, was attached to the Russian Admiral Kersenstern's famous discovery expedition in the beginning of the present century. Captain Langsdorf thus begins his 17th chapter. By the 13th of May our ship was ready to sail, and the next day we were out in the open sea on our way to Akatosh. The weather was very clear and fine, but so intolerably cold that we were obliged to keep on our fur clothing— For some days we had very little wind. It was not till the 19th that a brisk gale from the northwest sprang up. An uncommon large whale, the body of which was larger than the ship itself, lay almost at the surface of the water, but was not perceived by anyone on board till the moment when the ship, which was in full sail, was almost upon him, so that it was impossible to prevent its striking against him. We were thus placed in the most imminent danger— as this gigantic creature, setting up its back, raised the ship three feet at least out of the water. The masts reeled, and the sails fell all together, while we, who were below, all sprang instantly upon the deck, concluding that we had struck upon some rock. Instead of this, we saw the monster sailing off with the utmost gravity and solemnity, Captain DeWolf applied immediately to the pumps to examine whether or not the vessel had received any damage from the shock. But we found that, very happily, it had escaped entirely uninjured. Now, the Captain DeWolf here alluded to as commanding the ship in question is a New Englander, who, after a long life of unusual adventures as a sea captain, this day resides in the village of Dorchester, near Boston, I have the honor of being a nephew of his. I have particularly questioned him concerning this passage in Langsdorff. He substantiates every word. The ship, however, was by no means a large one, a Russian craft built on the Siberian coast and purchased by my uncle after bartering away the vessel in which he sailed from home. In that up-and-down manly book of old-fashioned adventure, so filled, too, of honest wonder's, the voyage of Lionel Wafer, one of the ancient Dampier's old chums, I found a little matter set down so like that just quoted from Langsdorff that I cannot forbear inserting it here for a corroborative example, if such be needed. Lionel, it seems, was on his way to John Fernando, as he calls the modern Juan Fernandez. In our way thither, he says, about four o'clock in the morning— when we were about one hundred and fifty leagues from the main of America, our ship felt a terrible shock, which put our men in such consternation that they could hardly tell where they were or what to think. But everyone began to prepare for death. And indeed, the shock was so sudden and violent that we took it for granted. The ship had struck against a rock. But when the amazement was a little over, we cast the lead and sounded but found no ground. The suddenness of the shock made the guns leap in their carriages, and several of the men were shaken out of their hammocks. Captain Davis, who lay with his head on a gun, was thrown out of his cabin. Lionel then goes on to impute the shock to an earthquake, but seems to substantiate the imputation by stating that a great earthquake, somewhere about that time, did actually do great mischief along the Spanish land but I should not much wonder if, in the darkness of that early hour of the morning, the shock was after all caused by an unseen whale vertically bumping the hull from beneath. I might proceed with several more examples, one way or another known to me, of the great power and malice at times of the sperm whale. In more than one instance, he has been known not only to chase the assailing boats back to their ships, but to pursue the ship itself and long withstand all the lances hurled at him from its decks. The English ship, Pussy Hall, can tell a story on that head. And as for his strength, let me say, that there have been examples where the lines attached to a running sperm whale have, in a calm, been transferred to the ship and secured there. The whale, towing her great hull through the water as a horse, walks off with a cart. Again, it is very often observed that if the sperm whale, once struck, is allowed time to rally, he then acts, not so often with blind rage as with willful, deliberate designs of destruction to his pursuers. Nor is it without conveying some eloquent indication of his character that upon being attacked he will frequently open his mouth and retain it in that dread expansion for several consecutive minutes. But I must be content with only one more, and a concluding illustration, a remarkable and most significant one, by which you will not fail to see, that not only is the most marvelous event in this book corroborated by plain facts of the present day, but that these marvels, like all marvels, are mere repetitions of the ages, so that for the millionth time we say amen with Solomon. Verily, there is nothing new under the sun." In the 6th Christian century lived Procopius, a Christian magistrate of Constantinople, in the days when Justinian was emperor and Belisarius general. As many know, he wrote the history of his own times, a work every way of uncommon value. But the best authorities, he has always been considered a most trustworthy and unexaggerating historian, except in some one or two particulars not at all affecting the matter presently to be mentioned. Now, in this history of his, Procopius mentions that during the term of his prefecture at Constantinople, a great sea monster was captured in the neighboring Sea of Marmara after having destroyed vessels at intervals in those waters for a period of more than fifty years. A fact thus set down in substantial history cannot easily be gainsaid, nor is there any reason it should be. Of what precise species this sea monster was is not mentioned— But as he destroyed ships, as well as for other reasons, he must have been a whale, and I am strongly inclined to think of sperm whale, and I will tell you why. For a long time I fancied that the sperm whale had been always unknown in the Mediterranean and the deep waters connecting with it. Even now I am certain that those seas are not, and perhaps never can be, in the present constitution of things, a place for his habitual gregarious resort." But further investigations have recently proved to me that in modern times there have been isolated instances of the presence of the sperm whale in the Mediterranean. I am told, on good authority, that on the Barbary coast, a Commodore Davis of the British Navy found the skeleton of a sperm whale. Now, as a vessel of war readily passes through the Dardanelles, hence a sperm whale could, by the same route, pass out of the Mediterranean into the Sea of Marmor. On the seam of Marmora, as far as I can learn, none of that peculiar substance called Brit is to be found, the ailment of the right whale. But I have every reason to believe that the food of the sperm whale, squid or cuttlefish, lurks at the bottom of that sea, because large creatures, but by no means the largest of that sort, have been found at its surface. If, then, you properly put these statements together, and reason upon them a bit, you will clearly perceive that according to all human reasoning, Procopius's sea monster, that for a half-century stove the ships of a Roman emperor, must in all probability have been a sperm whale. Chapter 46. Surmises. Though consumed with the hot fire of his purpose, Ahab ever had in view the ultimate capture of Moby Dick— though he seemed ready to sacrifice all mortal interest to that one passion. Nevertheless, it may have been that he was by nature, and long habituation, far too wedded to a fiery whaleman's ways altogether to abandon the collateral prosecution of the voyage. Or at least, if this were otherwise, there were not wanting other motives much more influential with him. It would be refining too much, perhaps, even considering his monomania to hint that his vindictiveness towards the white whale might have been possibly extended itself in some degree to all sperm whales, and that the more monsters he slew, by so much the more he multiplied the chances, that each subsequently encountered whale would prove to be the hated one he hunted. But if such a hypothesis be indeed exceptionable, there were still additional considerations which, though not so strictly according with the wildness of his ruling passion, yet were by no means incapable of swaying him. To accomplish his object, Ahab must use tools, and of all tools used in the shadow of the moon, men are most apt to get out of order. He knew, for example, that however magnetic his ascendancy in some respects was over Starbuck, yet that ascendancy did not cover the complete spiritual man any more than more corporal superiority involves intellectual mastership, for, to the purely spiritual, the intellectual but stand in a sort of corporal relation. Starbuck's body and Starbuck's coarsed will were Ahab's, so long as Ahab kept his magnet at Starbuck's brain. Still, he knew that for all this the chief mate in his soul abhorred his captain's quest, and, could he, would joyfully disintegrate himself from it, or even frustrate it it might be that a long interval would elapse ere the white whale was seen. During that long interval Starbuck would ever be apt to fall into open relapses of rebellion against his captain's leadership, unless some ordinary, prudential, circumstantial influences were brought to bear upon him. Not only that, but the subtle insanity of Ahab respecting Moby Dick was no ways more significantly manifested than in his superlative sense and shrewdness in foreseeing that, for the present, the hunt should in some way be stripped of that strange, imaginative impiousness which naturally invested it. That the full terror of the voyage must be kept withdrawn into the obscure background, for few men's courage is proof against protracted meditation, unrelieved by action. That when they stood their long night watches, his officers and men must have some nearer things to think of than Moby Dick, for however eagerly and impetuously the savage crew had hailed the announcement of his quest, yet all sailors of all sorts are more or less capricious and unreliable. They live in the varying outer weather, and they inhale its fickleness, and when retained for any object remote and blank in the pursuit, however promissory of life and passion in the end, it is above all things requisite that temporary interests and employments should intervene and hold them healthily suspended for the final dash. Nor was Ahab unmindful of another thing. In times of strong emotion, mankind disdain all base considerations. But such times are evanescent. The permanent constitutional condition of the manufactured man, thought Ahab, is sordidness. Granting that the white whale fully incites the hearts of this, my savage crew and playing round their savageness even breeds a certain generous knight errantism in them. Still, while for the love of it they give chase to Moby Dick, they must also have food for their more common daily appetites. For even the high-lifted and chivalric crusaders of old times were not content to traverse 2,000 miles of land to fight for their holy scepter without committing burglaries, picking pockets, and gaining other pious prerequisites, by the way. Had they been strictly held to their one final and romantic object, that final and romantic object, too many would have turned from it in disgust. "'I will not strip these men,' thought Ahab, "'of all hopes of cash. I cash. "'They may scorn cash now, but let some months go by, "'and no prospective promise of it to them, "'and then the same cash, all at once mutinying in them. "'The same cash would soon cashier Ahab.' nor was there wanting still another precautionary motive more related to Ahab personally. Having impulsively, it is probable, and perhaps somewhat prematurely revealed, the prime but private purpose of the Pequod's voyage, Ahab was now entirely conscious that, in doing so, he had indirectly laid himself open to the unanswerable charge of usurpation, and with perfect impunity both moral and legal, his crew, if so disposed, and to that incompetent, could refuse all further obedience to him, and even violently wrest from him the command. From even the barely hinted imputation of usurption, and the possible consequences of such a suppressed impression gaining ground, Ahab must, of course, have been most anxious to protect himself. That protection could only consist in his own predominating brain and heart and hand, backed by a heedful, closely calculating attention to every minute atmospheric influence which it was possible for his crew to be subjected to. For all these reasons, then, and others perhaps too analytic to be verbally developed here, Ahab plainly saw that he must still, in a good degree, continue true to the natural, nominal purpose of the Pequod's voyage. Observe all customary usages, and not only that, but force himself to evince all his well-known passionate interest in the general pursuit of his profession. Be all this as it may, his voice was now often heard hailing the three mastheads and admonishing them to keep a bright lookout and not omit reporting even a porpoise. This vigilance was not long without a reward. WUNC.